spoke as if he had gone into the cosmos and come back and was here to tell us about it and take us there. Have you made contact with the eternal? Or are you still obsessed with the momentary? There's something about seeing other people being devoted that makes you think, oh, well, those people don't seem crazy. And they'll say, you seem like a normal, rational, intelligent human being. How did this happen to you? You know, looking back now, he would do all kinds of things to draw you into him. Endearing things. And he made you feel special and you felt really loved. It was hard for me to admit that I was brain I was brainwashed uh, and I was in a cult. Los Angeles, 1985. Grainy VHS footage depicts a large group of sun-kissed men and women on a beach. Some are being helped along by others, and they're weeping, heads slumped on their friend's shoulders, traumatized. Others look as if they're in some sort of spiritual ecstasy, hands clasped in prayer, faces glowing with joy. They've obviously experienced something profound. Some are frolicking in the water, or laying hands on each other on the beach, many of them writhing and dancing, as if their bodies are shaking free of some invisible shackles. They laugh and sing like they've discovered some immense inner joy that you and I could never hope to understand. Scenes intercut. The group, larger in number now, running and jumping and dancing in ponchos in a rain-swept forest. Then they're diving off sun-splashed cliffs into deep water and hiking through lush green hills. The one common denominator? They're all following the lead of one man. Whenever he's on the screen, they either flock around him or stand facing him in rows, perfectly still, hanging on his every word and action many of them smiling or sobbing. He's a swarthy, muscled man in a speedo with a mop of highlighted hair who regards them with his piercing stare. His eyes are enormous, dark pools that seldom blink. They just regard his subjects, face blank, but head held high, as if silently demanding, don't you know who I am? Even through the gritty eye of the 80s camcorder, it's evident that he's a presence, To them, he's a force, a spirit, maybe even a god, a being for whom they would do anything. And they did. They were his students, servants, and worshippers. They were also his playthings, some more than others. You're listening to Wicked Gay, a true crime podcast about gay people doing awful things. I mean, I would have killed or died for him. It's so common 
it's everywhere. Look around you, you've got a cult in your town, I almost guarantee. So that clip is taken from the 2016 documentary, Holy Hell. And when I heard the guy say that, I was like, well, there's no cult in my town, I'm in Boston. But then I thought back in college, because I went to college in Boston, there was one day on campus when like a smiling man and woman approached me and they had a clipboard and they were like, do you want to take a personality test? And we've got like popcorn and snacks and stuff. And it was the Scientologists. And so now I was thinking back, yeah, there were cults in my town. Hello, I'm your host and disaster homosexual, Jay Harvey. Uh, cults. Cults scare me. Why? Here's a stellar example. No way I'm going to do it. I, I refuse. I don't know who fired the shot. I don't know who killed the congressman. But as far as I'm concerned, I killed him. Respect, die with a degree of dignity. Lay down your life with dignity. Don't lay down with tears and agony. There's nothing to death. It's like Max said. It's just stepping over in another plane. Don't, don't be this way. On November 18, 1978, over 900 people at a compound in the jungles of Guyana took their own lives. They were commanded to, by a man, use the guise of a religious leader to turn their spirituality, charity, and devotion to God against them. They had surrendered everything to him, from homes, paychecks, and belongings, to their autonomy and freedom, and then ultimately, their lives. He lured them to the jungle under the pretense of a religious and political freedom, painting it as the ultimate socialist love society utopia, only for what amounted to be a concentration camp. They were forced to work insane hours with very little sleep and punished with public humiliation and physical beatings for most infractions. He pit them against each other in brutal encounter sessions that often resulted in violence. Then, late in the evening, paranoid and high, He'd scream them awake over the compound's PA system, shrieking that they were under attack by fascist enemies. So they would immediately launch into endless practice drills for defending their compound against imaginary marauders. Those who protested conditions, tried to escape, or were considered too unruly or problematic, were often tortured or drugged against their will and held prisoner in the compound's infirmary. The doom countdown began when cult members' loved ones back in the States raised concerns. So many concerns that a U.S. congressman from California launched a fact-finding mission. Accompanied by some of his staff, an NBC News crew, and other journalists, he traveled to Guyana to investigate the compound. His mission was to learn whether the rumors were true about people being held against their will and tortured. Their arrival triggered the cult's drug-addled, narcissistic leader's paranoia. He used it as evidence that his warnings about the outside world bent on destroying them were coming true. The delegation presented a potential escape for some disillusioned, desperate, and terrified cult members. And when they made their intent to leave with the visitors plain to their leader, he responded by inciting the followers still loyal to him to violence, and then murder, and then drove his entire congregation to mass suicide some of them at gunpoint, and many of them children. He was the Reverend Jim Jones. The cult was called the People's Temple, and the community was called Jonestown. So yeah, cults scare me. Taking their lives with just one piece. Talking to them, all they're doing is taking a drink to, take, to go to sleep. That's like- I think I understand why people get involved in cults, especially after researching tonight's story. For instance, someone who feels like an outsider might feel like they finally found community or family 
that shares the same goals and beliefs they do. Other people like the idea of someone running their lives, giving them guidance and structure, and a feeling of being cared for. Some are looking for the why of life, why me, why this existence, and think that the leader has the answers. Along those lines, many people end up in cults because they think they found God. Tonight's story is about one such cult, a cult of beautiful people that believe they found the answer to all of life's mysteries and a God on earth. Spoiler alert, he wasn't. He was just some failed actor with a good line of bullshit and a solid commitment to the role of earthbound deity. They knew him mainly as the master, but his other aliases included Michel Rostand, Andreas, the teacher, Rachi, and uh, Dorothy and Cindy. He eventually dropped any pretense of helping his followers know God and shifted their focus to worshiping him. And they did. He was able to control their lives, keep them as virtual slaves, and secretly treat some of them as his concubines for many years. His real name was Jaime Gomez. This is episode 32, Drop Your Mind, Jaime Gomez and the Buddha Field. My two primary sources for tonight's episode are that documentary, Holy Hell, which was written and directed by former Buddhafield member Will Allen. You can watch it on YouTube and Amazon Prime, and it's the source for all the audio clips you're going to hear tonight, except for the Jonestown one. My other chief source was a book with a really long title called The Followers, Holy Hell and the Disciples of Narcissistic Leaders, How My Years in a Notorious Cult Parallel Today's Cultural Mania, (sighs) pant, by longtime Buddhafield member Radia Glees. I also used interviews and stories about the Buddhafield and Holy Hell from CNN, Rolling Stone, and Vulture. By the way, Buddha in general means enlightened or awakened one. The being we know as the classic Buddha, V. Buddha, lived about 25 centuries ago, and his teachings make up Buddhism, one of the world's largest religions. Buddha Field translates as a pure land and supposedly the celestial realm of the Buddha. But that wasn't what they were going for. They kind of just grabbed this loose term and started calling themselves that. This Buddha field did take part in some Buddhist practices, but their worship activities mainly were an amalgamation of Far East religions and meditations and teachings that their masters stole from a bunch of other guru types. Will and Radia were members of the Buddha field who rose in rank to become two of Jaime Gomez's most trusted servants. And as much as possible, I'll do what Radia does in her book and refer to him by his given name, Jaime Gomez, but occasionally allude to what they were calling him at certain times in the story's timeline. Radia was his right-hand woman, handling many of his legal and business concerns, and Will acted as his videographer, personal monsieur, monsieur, chauffeur, and unfortunately, victim. Will joined the Buddha field in 1985 in Los Angeles when he was in his early 20s. He was a young, openly gay man with an interest in making movies, who'd been semi-rejected by his mom when he came out. She quickly asked him to leave home and make it on his own. Like many young people, he was searching for meaning and enlightenment. He was introduced to Jaime, whom he knew then as Michelle, by his sister. Her name was Amy. She was a member of what came to be called the Buddha Field. Jaime had changed Amy's name to Emiliana, but we'll go with Amy. Eventually, Will's older sister, Lori who Jaime renamed Cristala, also joined. 
Many of the Budafield's members had their names changed by Jaime. For example, he called Will Francesco, but we're going to stick with Will, Amy, and Lori. And he also urged Will, Amy, and Lori to cut off their parents, which they eventually did. Oh, and by the way, giving members new names and urging them to cut off their families are like two giant red flags that you're in a cult. You're a new person or you're a new family. Radia was the daughter of wealthy, dysfunctional parents in Southern California, the kind of parents and upbringing where they made sure that she knew how to make them a cocktail by the time she was six. She describes her upbringing as very madmen. Older than Will, and a brilliant polymath, she had a nomadic, hippie existence until a guru she followed for a short amount of time in Florida led to her meeting a man named Jaime Gomez when she moved back to L.A., Not a ton is known about Jaime's early years. What is known is that he's the son of a Venezuelan rancher and had kind of a tragic family background. He lost his mom at age two, and his brother drowned at the age of 12, over which, Radia wrote, he felt serious guilt. She also noted that Jaime claimed to have been molested by men that worked on his dad's ranch. He also had a thing against choral music, Uh, The Budafield were big into performing, and that included sing-alongs, but choral music was a no-no for Jaime. He explained to Radia that he had a choir master when he was a kid who gave him a nickname that referred to his butt. And Radia read between the lines and deduced that Jaime was probably also molested by nickname guy, because who the hell does that? He ended up in the States, where he wanted to make it as an actor, dancer, and performer. And he does have a few IMDb credits to his name, but only small stuff. Most notably, a very quick shot of him in the ending party scene in 1968's Rosemary's Baby, which is one of my favorite movies. I'll put the pic on Wicked Gay's Instagram at Pod of him in the movie. He also did another type of film acting, but we'll leave that till later. His main dance concentration was ballet, and he was a member of the Oakland Ballet at one point. He ended up conducting acting and yoga workshops in Florida before settling back in Los Angeles. Eventually, he indulged his spiritual side and went into the guru business. His former followers later discovered that most of his teachings were the meditations and philosophies of other gurus that he adapted as his own. He cherry-picked what he liked and perfected a line of bullshit that was second to none, especially when entrancing an audience of spiritual people seeking nirvana. Now, pretty much every member interviewed in Will's documentary describes the Buddha field as some of the most beautiful people they've ever met in their life, loving and caring, all of them wanting to give their life to the version of God the Master represented, and to feel full of his purpose. The cult was initially based in Los Angeles, and they'd have weekly meetings in West Hollywood called Satsang, where they would meditate and listen to Michelle, as he was known then, lecture about how to get in touch with God. When are you going to wake up? When are you going to realize what you're doing with this precious energy, with this precious opportunity? He's so bossy. He told them that he had a master of his own. And I have to ask, after knowing the rest of the story, was that Master Satan? Not a big mystery why Polanski cast his ass in Rosemary's Baby. This master had supposedly given him what he would eventually refer to as, and this will be very important to the story, the knowing a mysterious ceremony-type thing in which you can meet with God one-on-one. The knowing was what everyone in the Buddha field strived towards, and Jaime made sure that he believed he was the one and only conduit, and he and he alone would decide who would receive it. 
he did dole it out to quite a few uh, followers in the beginning. And then he realized that it had value as a control tool, and he made the rest of them wait for it for 20 long years. The footage of Jaime in Holy Hell is always wild. He's usually encased in only a Speedo, sporting these big Ray-Bans and walking very slowly like he's floating and just constantly staring at his followers and not saying anything. He was big into staring contests as a form of meditation. That's when his followers aren't literally bowing and scraping before him, laughing and crying from his very presence, or waiting on him hand and foot. The documentary is crazy because worshipping in this case is entirely accurate. They are worshipping this man. As for the real motives here, well, motives besides control, ready-made servants, and money, their money, another reason might be foreshadowed in one moment in the beginning of the documentary when he's standing thigh in thigh-deep water in his banana hammock. He's got a male follower submerged in the water in front of him, and he then brings this guy up from under the water, but keeps him at face-to-knob level, crouching at his feet, and it's very suggestive. And it's like, no one clocked this? He's very touchy-feely with his male followers. Granted, the Buddha field did attract many gay men. I mean, they were in West Hollywood. But still, unless that's why you're there, let's uh, respect each other's bodies, right? He also earned his followers trust and admiration because he wasn't some wizened old man sitting in a diaper with a very long beard on some mountaintop in Nepal. He was a contemporary type with his Speedo and Ray-Bans and his devotion to working out and eating right. He spoke four or five languages, and they found him to be witty, humorous, and playful. I mean, you don't get into a cult if the leader's an abusive dick right off the bat. You're enticed. He was very enticing to them. And despite some odd details, everyone found this lifestyle and community supportive and loving. Eventually, most of them closed themselves off to the outside world, and the Buddha field, the satsangs, the retreats, the outings became their lives. Everything was Buddha field. Their only contacts with the outside world were when they, or when they had to go to work. Yeah, they did keep jobs in their own homes. Most of them did. However, some did live communally in Buddha field pods, if you will. They also tended to pool their money whenever a big expense came up. That is, the money they weren't spending on Jaime or giving him outright. He claimed to be a trained hypnotherapist, so everyone had to undergo therapy with him, which he called cleansings. In these cleansings, he used his hypnotherapy training to help them get over past traumas and figure out what, in their background, was keeping them from embracing the present and the God about which he preached. He charged them 50 bucks a pop for these cleansings. And there were around 150 members, usually, not counting the ones who came and went. So he was making some nice cash, I assume, under the table. When they weren't working at their own jobs, they had to perform what was called service. Service was giving their time to tasks and assignments that supposedly bettered themselves and the planet for God. At first, it sounds like they, they started off as like charity efforts, but then kind of shifted towards servicing the Buddha field, specifically Jaime himself towards fulfilling his every wish. They devoted so much of their time to the group and to service, one member noted, that it wasn't unusual for her to work 40 hours a week and then do service for another 40 hours. There was very little time for sleep or me time, and in some cases for their actual occupations. Many of them left or lost their jobs and became dependent on the Buddha field. 
they always had a place to stay and food to eat, so they were taken care of at first. And um, by the way, another red flag that you might have joined a cult is sleep deprivation, because it can make you weak and highly susceptible to suggestion. Another thing about the Buddha field, Jaime was all about aesthetics. He wanted everyone to be physically fit and look as attractive as he thought he was. So drugs and alcohol were discouraged, and it was all about what nowadays we call eating clean and working out. You know, my cult deal breaker is when they start telling me I can't eat certain things. I mean, I'll worship Baal the child eater, sure, but if I can't eat Kraft macaroni and cheese, later zombies. Everyone worked out, and it was all about keeping that body. Jaime was an insanely vain man, and he wanted everything and everyone to be pleasing to the eye. Will's sister Lori is a curvy type, and uh, she noted in her Holy Hell interview that Jaime wasn't a big fan of hers because she's fat. As is often the case in life, the pretty people were usually on top in the cult's hierarchy, particularly the men. Just wait till I get to the plastic surgery stories. As I noted before, Will had wanted to be a filmmaker, so he became the Buddhafield's official videographer, and the videos grew from capturing their experiences and sharing Jaime's message of love to recording Jaime's every move and meditation, and then even into scripted stuff like music videos, action movies, pretty elaborate stuff, all of them centered around their master as the lead character, the hero, the savior, and ugh, bomb. So if you're into student-looking films with a little bit of a budget, centered around one weird-looking dude in short shorts staring at the camera while silk blows around him or rising dramatically out of a koi pond, this is the film cycle for you. Oftentimes, the films would be based on Jaime's teachings and views on the world. For instance, he was pretty much a misogynist. He was very against anyone pairing off or his followers having sex, but he usually blamed the women for trying to entice the men. One of Will's videos was a Jaime-inspired satire about one of the cult's members who I think was made to play herself, being a lascivious tramp trying to seduce the male members of the cult, and it ends with her rather harshly being run over by an 18-wheeler. <laughs> Look, I mean, I'm laughing, I know it's played for laughs, but it's actually kind of brutal. Jaime would also make crude jokes about what he perceived as the awful scent of vaginas. The dude was not lady-friendly. But, according to one member, a common joke among them all was that if this was a cult, it must be a pretty good one. Hardy har har. And were they dedicated to him? Here's an example. There's this one guy, Julian. Like Will, he came into the Buddha field as a young man, and he wanted to know what he could do for Jaime to show his devotion. Like a little drummer boy, what give do I have to give to him? So Jaime tells Julian that he can make him a fruit salad every morning. Fair enough. But Julian wanted to make the best fruit salad possible. So we go to the market every morning, buy the freshest fruit, and make the most elaborate fruit salads you've ever seen. Fruit Salad Julian made fruit salad into an art form. I'll post some of the examples of his fruit salads on social media. They're crazy. He started by carving Buddhas out of papayas and spending hours on these fruit salads. In one shot, you see a fruit salad representation of Jaime floating on a raft 
and he's wearing a Speedo made out of a strawberry. He even made a fruit salad last supper. As he says, he put his everything into these fruit salads because they were for God. And then one day, he comes home, and his roommate at the time is sliding his latest fruit salad masterpiece into a, bl- <laughs> into a blender and making a smoothie out of his beautiful artwork. Julian, I mean, it was a strange medium, but the guy has talent. So Julian was devastated when he found out the master wasn't eating his meticulously crafted fruit salad artwork and pawning them off on whichever follower happened to be around. But Julian kept it up with the papaya and the strawberry speedos because he felt that there was no other way to give him anything that, to show his devotion. And the poor guy was crying when he told the story to Will's camera. The knowing was the big draw with Jaime. Everyone wanted the knowing, and those who received it were considered the cult's elite. And those people could kind of lord it over the people who were still waiting for it. And they waited a while, as I said earlier. Some of them waited 20 years. These people included Will's sister, Amy, who had been in the Buddha field longer than him. She brought him in. To her huge dismay, Jaime determined that Will was ready for what amounted to woo-woo bullshit, but she wasn't. So she hung on for those 20 years. Imagine your brother gets behind the velvet rope of bullshit upon arrival, but you're out on the curb in the rain. And I'm probably correct in suspecting that Will received the knowing because he was young, handsome, and had a body. Roddy received the knowing, and she gets into exactly what happens in her book. So Jaime but partially stole it from a book called the Bhagavad Gita, one of Hinduism's holy scriptures. It's from the part where the Hindu deity Krishna reveals the direct experience of God to his disciple Arjuna. And in fact, it's so stupid. It's so stupid that I understand when Radia says that she's almost positive that many members who got it probably actually felt or saw nothing and pretended that they had because no one wants to have had an audience with God and God suddenly remembers that he didn't pick up the kids at school and you just feel nothing. So everyone who did this thing with Jaime raved that it was the most important mystical experience of their lives. So when you met with Jaime for the knowing, he gave you four meditation techniques to supposedly open your third eye. And the actual knowing part is him making you close your eyes and putting three fingers on your head, one on your forehead, and then his other two on your eyelids. And he presses. He pushes on your eyes. First fucking ow. Radia confirmed this is extremely painful. And let me say, I don't like eye stuff. I don't like anything near my eyes. I couldn't wear contacts if I had to. When I go to the eye doctor for my yearly diabetes eye thing, I'm about to bust out of that room because when he has to press on them, so no. So how people could stand this wackadoo doing that to their eyes, I have no idea. Anyway, you would of course see stars. You know, he's pressing on your eyes with his fingers. And apparently it can trigger some sort of brain reaction with people. Although it's also because you're probably so hyped up for this thing that you convince yourself that you see things. She said she felt very enlightened and saw colors and lights like she was on an acid trip, but she hadn't taken a thing. They were against drugs. But it also reads like this was just a reaction to having her eyeballs manhandled and a firm believer in her guru's bullshit. And let me tell you about some of the reactions to the knowing caught on video. People who got it 
staggering down the hill from Jaime, screaming aloud, falling into their fellow followers' arms. And it was all bullshit. So the thing is, Budafield elite member, your like really accuracy experience is trapping the other fools who were denied this experience, who then go on to hang in with this guy and endure his abuse for 20 years. So thanks for that. Now, as I said, not everyone was judged by Jaime as ready for the knowing, but there was a free version of the knowing before you got to the premium level. It was called giving Shakti. Uh, Shakti. And it was another scene where Jaime was laying his hands on you and allegedly letting his god energy flow into you. Watching footage of this, I was shaking my head again. He's got one girl kneeling before him, and her friend is physically supporting her from behind. He's got his hands on her head and chest. She starts shaking and swooning because she's chock full of Shakti juice. Descriptions from Buddhafield members of what receiving Shakti was like. Quote, my body started convulsing and all these kinds of things started happening. When he touched me, I was no longer myself. There was a profound experience where I felt a current, where I felt like there's electricity happening, like lightning. They also said they would hear a massive sound like a jet airplane. And one person said, colors were moving around Jaime. Uh-huh, probably the globe is Speedo. Shakti was something he was willing to give out on the regular, to keep him hanging on for the deluxe level. It was very Emperor's New Clothes. You pretend to be filled with his power or whatever because you didn't want the rest of the Buddha field to think that you weren't open to receiving God energy. It was like a massive group delusion. As one of the disciples put it, the knowing, this direct experience of God that Jaime was giving, was something some of these people had been searching for their entire life. It was powerful to them. Imagine all the knowledge of the universe and a direct audience with God are being dangled in front of you. All you have to do is devote your entire life to its messenger and do whatever he says. As for Will's personal knowing experience, one night Jaime tells them that he had been up all night fighting with God for Will's life. Uh, thanks? He told Will he was fated to have a terrible accident and supposed to die. But he said that if Will followed his guidance, he would be okay. And this is the kind of thing a malignant narcissist cult leader does to entrap you. Fear, and a promise that only they can offer you safety and salvation. And you can probably guess what that guidance ended up being for Will, and the other handsome young men in the cult that he laid the same rap on. Because many of the guys got this same speech, the death threat slash I'm your only safety deal. Will described his knowing experience as being something he hadn't expected. He said he saw light and heard sound, and there was no denying the beauty of what he was experiencing. But besides that, he felt overwhelmed. He felt like Jaime was asking too much of him, and he was getting in too deep. Will did his service directly for Jaime. Jaime required, supposedly, multiple massages daily, which they called body work. This was, supposedly, because giving Shakti was so physically taxing, so Jaime was, supposedly, always in pain. Will was chosen to be one of his body workers. Jaime basically had spa-level treatment on the daily from his followers. And Will was told that it was an honor to serve him personally, and being chosen did make him feel privileged. He, after all, had direct access to the Messiah. Jaime required so many massages because he danced, ballet danced, and worked out constantly. 
Uh, ballet was a giant thing for Jaime. Eventually, Will and another member moved into the apartment beside Jaime's and transformed their living room into a dance studio for him. Because, you know, fuck a coffee table, you need to plie, master. So, Jaime made ballet a significant part of the Budafield's life. Remember, he was in the Oakland Ballet when he was younger. At first, it was just ballet practice as an exercise, but eventually they kind of, they formed their own ballet troupe almost. Um, and eventually, later on in the Budafield's existence, they would put on dance performances, ballets with costumes, sets, and lights, and they even built a theater at one point. But these elaborate shows and performances would only be for each other. The audience would be other Budafield members, and Jaime would obsess over them, making them rehearse and rehearse. They were months in the planning and practice, and woe to you if you didn't give 150% to the ballet overlord. And as one member said, 90% of the Budafield hated it, and he made them do it anyway. There's footage of him scolding them, and he'd often reduce people to tears. And in addition to the forced ballet dancing, another odd aspect to Jaime's personality was his views on sex. In one scene, he's mocking sexual relations in a kind of a crude and juvenile manner like a kid would. He saw sex, at least outwardly, as something to be ridiculed and as a waste of time and spirit. He insisted that they all practice abstinence. He told them that orgasms were death that the most incredible orgasms were through abstinence and meditating. Oh, shit. Some members say that they followed his directive and didn't have sex for years. And others say that the cult should have been referred to as the booty field, that's a quote, because members were having clandestine relations with each other to a huge degree. And some were, at least, because we're going to get a forced abortion story. Lucky you. Jaime was aware he was running a cult because he was super vocal about how they weren't a cult, and he said they were actually a non-group. Some of the members' families tried to get them to leave, even hiring private investigators and threatening to have them deprogrammed. I mean, your kid is waiting hand and foot on this crazy muscle queen in a Speedo wearing eyeliner and like bathing him and performing in his ballets. I can kind of see mom and dad's apprehension. And he was just a big sadist, too. Uh, Here's some examples. So they would go on these retreats that were supposed to last a week or two at most. But he would stretch them out and never give them a definitive date of when they could go home. As a result, most people had to call and lie to their employers, and many lost their jobs. And they're still paying for food and lodging, as well as all of his needs. So one of the last retreats they went on before they left LA lasted seven weeks in Utah. Most of them were panicking about money and their jobs. Jaime didn't care. He told them to just drop their minds. Uh, Pause here. Dropping their minds. So with encouragement from the master, followers were constantly criticizing each other for not spending every hour serving him. A follower would be told they needed to drop their mind if they were seemingly thinking for themselves or acting like a normal person. You were supposed to be outside of your mind, beyond thought, always looking to transcend by following and focusing on Jaime's teachings. 
If you were having thoughts, you weren't connected to meditation and God, namely Jaime. So when they finally returned to LA, he immediately went on vacation to Hawaii. And guess how he um, paid for these vacations? His minions, uh, of course, still collected followers' dues for Jaime's classes, even though there were no classes for two months, and most of them were now broke and unemployed because of the Utah trip. And another example of his evil was the holidays. I mean, okay, these stories aren't anything compared to what he was doing to people behind closed doors, but this holiday one really made me want to punch him in the teeth from how annoying it sounds alone. So one holiday, one of the followers decided it would be fun to make fortune cookies for one of the desserts. So the following year, Jaime told her to make the cookies again, except this time, all of the fortunes should be written about him. And from then on, Thanksgiving and Christmas became hell. Each year dinner was served, but no one could touch it, because all the fortune cookies, all 150 of them, that were praising Jaime had to be read aloud. And they weren't just one sentence, some were in whole paragraphs, which got more elaborate and sycophantic every year. How do you get a paragraph instead of a fortune cookie? That's a lot of paper. As Will's sister Lori pointed out, she said, It was kind of nice when it first started out, and it wasn't all about adoring him. It was about achieving some sort of spiritual growth for yourself, not licking his feet. In 1991, things changed. An outsider fell in love with one of the female cult members, who did not return his affection. According to former members, this man began stalking her, and when that didn't work, he got a man named Rick Ross, and Rick Ross had something, a group called the Cult Awareness Network. He got him involved. Ross began to investigate and try to expose the Buddha field as a cult. Exposure was one of Jaime's worst fears. Well, yeah, probably because you're fleecing and raping your members. At this point, the Buddha field went from being all about sharing Shakti and hopefully eventually getting the knowing to we need to hide and then GTFO. And then one night, he grabs Will and a few others and they flee. Will notes that he had no money or credit cards. He was living underground and utterly dependent on Jaime. And you can bet that's exactly how Jaime wanted it. So they left most of the group behind in L.A., and they would send word, they said, when they decided where to settle. Meanwhile, people are recording video messages to him expressing their utter devotion, and through tears because they've been left behind. One lady says she'd go through fire for him, and thanks him for her life, referring to him as my master. You know, thinking about this, Los Angeles would have been fucked if he was the kind of cult leader to tell his people to start stabbing. Do you know what I mean? So the Budafield away team was on the road for six months trying to find a place to settle down where the whole group could join them. Eventually, Jaime picked Austin, Texas. One of his followers bought him a house in the suburbs. He had been known as Michelle until then, but now he was Andreas, one word like share. Well, the dude's a diva, makes sense. Finally, he called for the rest of them to join him gradually in small groupings. People broke leases and sold homes and belongings back in Los Angeles, and the Buddha Field was reborn there in Texas. 
and Jaime's new house in Austin was the focal point of everyone's service. They built a massive, gorgeous garden to transform it into a place of peace and beauty, and even built an aviary to house peacocks for Jaime to admire. There were other animals too, even a wallaby. The house became their sanctuary, and the garden a refuge for the Buddha field from the outside world. And then, 1993, Waco, Texas. Another cult goes down in flames, and this triggered Jaime, and he doubled down even more on the whole, you're gonna die out there if you leave me bullshit. After Waco, it was all about keeping the cult secret. They even practiced exercises of what to do if the FBI uh, went after them. Those who hadn't cut off their families completely were encouraged to lie. For example, Will, Amy, and Lori uh, were still sort of in contact with their mom, and they never told her that they were in Austin, and she lived three hours away in Fort Worth, Texas. In fact, Jaime had Will tell them that they were in Atlanta and then Mexico. He even had people who were going abroad send postcards supposedly from him from abroad to fool the parents so they would never visit them or try to contact them. I guess Jaime thought Will's parents were the ATF or some shit. So time arabesqued on. 1997 was the year of the theater. Jaime wanted a place to apparently show off his tights. So he had his followers buy a piece of land and design and build a theater on it. And the cracks continued to show, meaning Jaime was really starting to delight in his control over them. He would go out to the building site and decide he didn't like a wall or a window, so he had them undo all of their hard work and start over again from scratch. And then he would take people aside like Fruit Salad Julian and flip out on them about it not being done yet and that they were delaying his work and, quote, creating karma. Karma for them was something that they were always supposed to be getting rid of through their exercises, meditations, and hypnotherapy cleanses. But then he would flip his personality and say, oh, it's not about the building getting done, it's about you awakening through this process. And then flip back to scary cult dude and scream and and bitch about that the building better be done in a week. It did get built, and it's actually super impressive for lay people building a theater. You can look it up. It's called the One World Theater in West Austin, Texas. And I I assume no longer owned by the cult, and I'm sure they don't advertise the building's history. And once the theater got built, it was time to dance, ballet dance. Whereas before in Los Angeles, Jaime would be choreographing dances in the tiny studio they had in the apartment next door. Now we had a full-on theater. We're talking a massive stage, lights, props, scrims, costumes, the whole deal. And they would rehearse every day for hours. The rehearsals were so long that, in fact, some people quit their jobs to attend. Why did anybody have outside work? Why even bother? But, but, you know, watching these shows in the documentary, it does look like the productions themselves, at least when it came to the costume sets and lights, were kind of professional looking. It didn't look like a high school auditorium production. He must have had some know-how from his days with the Oakland Ballet. And guess who the star of these ballets were? You guessed right. And the cult would spend a year putting these together and then perform it for real only once. And the audience would be the other cult members. And, you know, Jaime had time to put into this ballet frenzy because he lived like a king. His followers drove him around they cooked and cleaned for him. They massaged and bathed him. One of these poor guys, a straight guy named Chris, will figure in later. 
He was one of the many who had to carry around the master's special chair, which was a huge backpack that unfolded into the dude's portable throne type thing. And he would wander around Austin with his entourage, despite wanting to have the cult be in secrecy. And when he got tired, they'd have to unpack his his throne for him so he could sit down. <laughs> what a giant asshole. Um, and, you know, this is all a form of service for them, which came to mean slavery. And he would even call members in the middle of the night to get the hell out of bed to do stuff for him. They weren't above recognizing the lunacy of, of their lives. Radia seems like a bright lady. She talks about how she and the other members would often joke about what a whack job he was and mock him behind his back. It was kind of like when you're married or in a relationship and you eye roll behind your partner's back, but you're still devoted to them. And the messages were always decidedly mixed. Now, I might have mentioned uh, aesthetics and plastic surgery before. Let's get into that. You know, the mixed messages were that he, he'd say things like, you're more than your body and your senses, that you need to rise above your body and transcend, but looks were a huge part of the Buddha field. They had to stay in shape, eat healthy. The women had to wear makeup and make themselves as attractive as possible. The men had to wax their bodies and stay muscular and plastic surgery. So that began to creep into the picture in a big way. Jaime began to really experiment with his face to stave off aging. He wore makeup, fake eyelashes, eyeliner, and concealer. He always at least had had an eye on, as the drag queens say. He really started in on his face. He actually had been the entire time, but as he aged, he got more and more procedures done. And as Radia puts it, uh, it began to look evident. It got so bad that he began to look deformed and scary. And then the worst part was he started making the followers, the guys, get plastic surgery procedures that he was interested in as like a test to see if it would if it was safe and if it would look good for real. They were like the king's food tasters, except they had to hack up their own faces or inject fillers for him. Ugh. And, you know, they wouldn't dare tell him when his makeup ran or if his latest plastic surgery procedure made him look distorted, they were terrified of his anger. And, you know, the benefits seemed to outweigh the crazy. They would just accept the questionable stuff, like a man forced to get cheek implants so his cult leader can make sure it's safe for him to do so and if it looks good. As one follower put it, the only truth left is the truth that he was told, and who is the highest authority in the group doling out the truth, the master. As for appearances, like I said before... Um, women, uh, curvy women were discouraged and hence women weren't allowed to be pregnant. There were no children in the Buddha field. He felt that spiritual growth and children didn't go together. But another reason I'm sure was that children would be a distraction from worshiping him. So he would force the women in the group to get abortions if they got pregnant. One woman resisted, but he told her that she would be kicked out of the Buddha field if she didn't. As I've said, it was their whole world. Uh, So she did it. She had her pregnancy terminated on his command. Eventually, she'd say that she'd go into surrender mode and just do whatever he would say as soon as she heard his voice. She ended up getting pregnant again by someone in the group, and Jaime forced her partner to insist to her to get an, an, an abortion because he would be kicked out if she didn't. And she did. Oh, and speaking of sadism, this is probably the worst one besides... 
um, what I'm going to tell you about in a little while. Radia claims in her book that he convinced one female follower to have her abortion. This is so awful. Without anesthetic? Oh, God. So she could transcend the pain and learn from it. And Radia accompanied this woman and held her hand during it, she says, and described it as one of the most traumatic experiences she'd ever witnessed. And afterward, Jaime was sadistically flattered that the woman had heeded his guidance. When someone left the group, they were immediately demonized. They were said to be in their minds. Remember, you had to drop those. When Lori left, rumors spread that she was a hooker and ran a brothel, as if that's a bad thing. And it could happen to anyone. Near the end, when Radia herself left, it even happened to her. And she was one of the upper echelon Buddha fielders. <laughs> you know, it's like, how did this shatter? How did everything shatter? How did I come here being so hated and so ostracized and demonized when I loved someone so much and gave my life for so long? One of the reasons, probably a minor one compared to the big reason, that Radia left was because he was having them break their moral boundaries. Uh, for example, if if he needed dirt on somebody who was leaving or had left, he'd have them break into their cars, homes, or computers. He'd even have them steal mail out of their mailbox if necessary. She said that they would all spy on each other, even stalk each other if it kept them in, in Jaime's good graces. 2006 was the beginning of the end. That was the year the email went out. Now, I couldn't find a copy of this digital missive that signaled the end of the Buddha field proper online, but Will does sort of flash it in the background in his documentary, and YouTube has a pause button. So I got the first paragraph and then some choice bits. So here goes. Dear Buddha field, it is important for the entire Buddha field to understand why so many of the master's longtime disciples have left. It is important for everyone to understand what the master has been doing in his position of power and how he has been treating many of those disciples closest to him. This information is factual and true and can be verified by any of the people that have experienced his behavior firsthand. And then we see snippets like, quote, dangerous and illegal behavior, quote, masturbate in front of him, quote, mental and physical abuse, and quote, false healings. This email writer knew of so many horrific things Jaime had done that he that he grouped them into helpful categories in his email and made these lists. And it was horrible what was going on. Uh, Jaime had basically sexually enslaved many of the men in the group, and not in the fun, consensual BDSM way. I mean the coercion, toxic power dynamic, everything but the physical rape way. And an awful aspect of this is that many of these guys identified as straight, and he still forced them through coercion, threats, abuse, and mystical nonsense that they were reincarnated lovers, this bullshit. So Jaime said the email was full of lies and ordered them not to read it, which, you know, too late, everyone had. Divisions happened, some believed it, some didn't. Straight guy Chris demonstrated how insidious cult mind control is when he told, tells us in the documentary that he wrote a rebuttal to the letter 
And then he pauses and tears up in front of the camera and reveals that he was one of Jaime's favorite victims for five years. And yet he's writing rebuttals, lying about it to protect this guy. He explains how he was a young man unsure of himself and Jaime functioned as as his therapist. So that's a big betrayal. And we hear recordings of Jaime breaking Chris down and disguising it as like a spiritual thing. Have you ever had sex with a guy? No. Have you ever wanted to? You can be very honest. He even had like a schedule set up with a rotating cycle of regular victims on different nights. And in some cases, these were young guys, and this was their introduction to sexuality. Remember, he had told them they shouldn't be engaging in relationships, romantic or sexual. And then he turned it around and said, except with me, because I'm your god. Ick. And this quote is heartbreaking from Chris. He said, you can't say no. No is against the rules. And then I had to pay him. I had to pay him for fucking therapy. 50 bucks every time I go in. So here's your bullshit therapy. We're going to fuck. Give me 50 bucks. What a deal. Can you imagine? I hate him. But still, somehow I'm there. I'm here in this group, going through the motions and serving him. And it was just, I felt like I was going mad. And who can blame this dude? Will was one of Jaime's favorite victims, too and revealed that Jaime told him that raping him was Jaime's way of saving his life. And again, Will would die without him. And along with the sexual abuse revelations, other stories came out. For example, Jaime had told one follower to claim that she had cancer so he could fake heal her. And in one tiny, I I guess you could say lighthearted part of this horrible story um and this isn't a bad thing just a fun fact they found porn tapes in addition to minor appearances in mainstream movies jaime had worked in gay porn and frankly that's the least of his offenses but for the godly guru who preached against sex it wasn't a good look and for fans interested in Jaime's Gomez's work as Dark, you could find him on Falcon Studios' site in titles like Winner's Way, Bronc Rider, and Magnum Griffin. So the master denied all of this, and he required the remaining followers to watch a video Will helped him shoot to explain himself. And here's a snippet. Not apologizing. I am in you. But in truth, there's no I, there's no you. So come. May all beings wake up. Huh? What? Oh, you're in me all right. A little too accurate in this case. So not a lot of accountability or apology on Jaime's part. And then, to hang on to his followers, after two decades, he finally decided to grant the knowing to the people who had waited for it for so long, including Will's sister Amy. And from what I can gather, it wasn't the stairway to heaven that people had been waiting on. Amy was disappointed, to put it mildly. It was described as very half-hearted, like he, his hand barely brushed their foreheads, and there was some disinterested mumbling. Again, this dude made these people who had been waiting for this mystical experience for two decades, he made them wait an hour more so he could finish watching Family Guy. Uh Uh-huh. 
And then the next day, Amy claims, uh, Jaime added to his added, I would say, attempted murder to his list of crimes. She claims he asked her if she knew a way to have the people trying to destroy him taken out. And if not helping him have them murdered, for her to find a way to get the IRS after them. Same thing. He wanted the man who had written the email taken out, as well as Radia, who had been his right-hand woman and privy to all of his inner workings, right? So some members threatened to go to the cops if Jaime didn't stop teaching. And in uh, an example of how difficult it is to get out of cults, Will was one of the few remaining members to fly with Jaime to Hawaii to help relocate his evil ass. But that's where he left him. And after 22 years, he left the cult. For many of these people, their whole life was the Buddha field, and the afterward wasn't pretty. One woman said that she had $45 to her name, no job, and no friends. This was a common story. Radia writes that she lost her house, her clinic, she'd been a nutritionist, and her friends her entire life, and had to start over from scratch. She writes about not even being able to afford a pizza. But in one nice part of the story, Will and his sisters reconnected with their parents. And then he began making a documentary out of the footage he collected over 22 years. And Roddy wrote her book, which is a fascinating look at not just the Buddha field, but why she thinks people join cults and her insights into the biggest cult story of recent times, Trump. Dude, she tears into Trump almost as much as if, if not more, than she tears into Jaime. So Will goes to Hawaii to finish off the documentary and finds out that Jaime, who is now calling himself Reichi, translation God King, has assembled a group of around 100 followers, and it's the same thing. They follow him around the town on the Hawaiian island of Oahu, just like Will and the OG Budafield had. And the sad part is that some of the people in the group were OG Budafield members who stayed with him despite knowing what he'd done and is probably still doing. Near the end of Holy Hell, which, by the way, snagged Jared Leto as a producer, and I'm sure is a much better movie than Morbius, Will and a few of the other former Budafield members go to Hawaii, and Will confronts Jaime on the beach. It's a short, awkward encounter with very little catharsis. I'm sure confronting your rapist is the opposite of easy. Also, you can't really strike an old dude in the face out of nowhere. I'm sure the urge was there, though. Jaime, by the way, looks like a walking episode of Botched. Massive aging, he's in his 70s now, and massive plastic surgery don't always mix. Holy Hell premiered at Sundance in 2016, where Jaime reportedly sent spies to keep tabs on the proceedings and denounce the movie. Some of the spies also reportedly physically threatened former members of the Buddha field. And then another kind of Holy Hell broke out when the documentary was part of the Honolulu Film Festival the same year. And in the town in which Jaime was running Budafield 2.0, it was blanketed with flyers for the movie, noting that Jaime lived amongst them and was still peddling his bullshit knowing. One former member of the cult uh, who lived in the same town reported being physically assaulted and threatened by Jaime's current bodyguard. Remember, he allegedly at one point was looking for people to be killed to protect himself, so this doesn't sound like it's out of the realm of possibility.
Jaime Gomez, a.k.a. Michelle Rastand, a.k.a. Dirk, a.k.a. Andreas, a.k.a. Richie, a.k.a. Dorothy, a.k.a. Cindy. Honestly, they never revealed why Dorothy or Cindy, but it was included in the book, so I had to include it, of course. He's never been charged or convicted of any crimes concerning the members of the Buddha field. As an ex-member pointed out in an interview with Rolling Stone, some of them are still figuring it out that it was rape because it didn't seem like that. As for Jaime's review of the movie, it was definitely low on his personal Rotten Tomatoes scoring site. He said, It is heartbreaking to see how history has been rewritten. Holy Hell is not a documentary. Rather, it is a work of fiction designed to create drama, fear, and persecution. That is what sells. I am saddened by this attempt to obscure the message of universal love and spiritual awakening. It is devastating to see these friends, who were once so filled with love for the world, become so angry. I wish them only the best, and hold each one close to my heart. If any of my actions were a catalyst for their disharmony, I am truly sorry. May all beings find peace. Michelle. So that's the story of the Buddha field. And I think the moral is to feel free to look for guidance, enlightenment, and community, but just try and hang on to your free will while you do it, people. And thanks for sticking around for this entire episode, because I know it was long. It's actually, I think, the longest one I've done for Wicked Gay, so that's probably not going to be a a common thing, but this one had so much good information in it that I wanted to share it. So, uh, yeah, you can find Wicked Gay on those pesky social media platforms, which are cults unto themselves, under Wicked Gay Pod, except for TikTok, because no one needs to see me dance. Our theme song remains You Won't Get Away With Murder by Gino and the Goons, and you can find them on Facebook and Spotify. Additional music by JB, cover art by Paul Chapman, and audio tunage by the other Mr. Harvey. If you like Wicked Gay, please recommend it to a friend, and please share, review, click stars, what have you. And good night, and stop being so hard on yourself if you're that type of person. You've been listening to Wicked Gay, a true crime podcast about gay people doing awful things. (laughs) 